And as we hear that good offering ringing in our ear, we come to the gospel reading for today from the gospel of John chapter 15, beginning the first verse, I invite you to stand as you're able for the reading. Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have to clear something up before we get started. Over these uh, next several weeks that I'll have the opportunity, like I said, twice in October and twice in November on this theme of Here We Stand, I am going to be reading from Romans 12 and John 15, right? We'll hear that several times. It's not an accident. It's not, ooh, they forgot to change last week's bulletin. (laughs) So we'll be uh, returning to this text. I promise it won't be the same sermon four times either. But we will come and come under this word from Romans 12 and different parts of John 15 over uh, these time and weeks together. Now with that said, let me take you to another place, uh, the town near where I grew up in Seattle, Washington, There in Seattle, in Post Alley, is a wall. And on that wall, as reported a few years ago when they tried to clean it off, there are over one million wads of gum. It's called Gum Wall, and if you can believe it, it's a popular tourist attraction. They don't have a problem with theft. People make deposits, but they do not uh, pick it up. In fact, when they were trying to clean it off a few years ago, uh, it looked like hazmat suits on when they were trying to clean the wall. It's easy to get stuck there, literally, or stick something there. And the reason I share that with you this morning is so I can say this. When we ask some of the deepest questions of our human longing. That which humans have been asking for eons and we still ask to this day, who am I? And what am I supposed to be doing in this life? These questions preoccupy us. And I suggest that these questions have become even more difficult Today, because our world, and even sometimes in our churches, have gotten gummed up, we've gotten stuck with the wrong things in our ear. We have missed 
understood where this answer comes from. And instead of receiving, we've tried to take out of our own mouth and get stuck. And we've attached ourselves to things that will not last. And it makes a mess of it. And so in the text that you heard Bill read for us from Romans 12, God invites us by his word, by his mercy, to get unstuck from the world that makes what can be simple and profound answers to those deep questions confusing. And so what I invite us today to move from the messiness of this world and the places that we get stuck, and I'll talk about some of those places in just a moment, and instead get attached, remain, even stand in the place that God says, this is where answers are found. This is where life is to be held. And the people of Israel, God's people, the idea of a vine was an important image. And so when Jesus talks about the vine and the vineyard, it is of deep significance. The image that you see on the screen right now is a a picture that I took in Nazareth at a vineyard and wine press only a few hundred yards from where Jesus' childhood home may have been. And the guide there said something that stuck with me, which was, uh, I wonder if this vine, which they later discovered, this vineyard, only a few hundred yards away, might have been something that Jesus had in mind when he was talking about this. Who knows? Just like Scholar Berg doesn't know uh, that uh, where Jesus was leading his disciples in the previous chapter, the very last verse, chapter 14, verse 31, after saying to his disciples these words, he said that the, the world... The rulers of this world are coming and they don't have claim on me. Let's get up and go. So they went somewhere. There's a long debate on where they went or did they get up and uh, move to the upper room in this final discourse of Jesus. One scholar, Berg, points out, well, you know, there was a gate, a gate in Israel, one one of the temple gates, a well-known gate, and he likes to imagine when Jesus was telling the story that they might have, on their way to where they were going, stood in front of this gate as, a, as an illustration of how important a vineyard and vine is to the people of Israel. There was a gate that had a, a gold vine on it. And when I mean gold, I mean real gold. Metalwork that had made this vine to, to show the significance of the image of the vine. And those who were blessed and doing well in Israel at the time would frequently take gold leaves and attach their gold leaf to that vine on that gate as a, as a symbol of saying that they are part of the people of God and, and being blessed and flourishing as part of this vine. 
And so this image is significant. It's important. It also gets pilfered. A few years later, in 70 AD, the Roman uh, army that finally fell the temple couldn't stop the soldiers from taking those uh, gold leaves for themselves. And as we sung in Christ alone, there's a contrast between taking that from the world by our own power and that which Christ gives us which cannot be taken away. So we're going to spend some time in this vine today. Before we step into it any further though, I want to remind you of this world that wants to pilfer it from us. Remind you of the world that wants to get stuck in our ear. This last week at the uh, Lutheran Congregations for Mission in Christ annual gathering, one of our, our pastors was a keynote speaker, and he shared this quote. And it's been ringing in my ear. And you'll forgive me for sharing it with you, and I say forgive me because I've shared it with you before. But it's worth repeating. It's by, a, I think he was an agnostic, certainly not a Christian believer, probably not quite an atheist, David Foster Wallace, and he was speaking at Kenyon College. And he writes, well, he spoke to that graduating class, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that, that pretty much anything else, this is important, that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. There are default settings, he says. Sadly, I don't think Wallace ever found what to put his hope in. He died a short time later by depression. We get stuck. We get gummed up in a world that wants us to take it from our own mouths and put it out there. And all it does is it's a, it's a gooey mess. <laughs> How do we get unstuck? Where can we finally get the answers to these questions? In a world that is largely secular, 
Well, Martin Luther answered that question. It's appropriate 500 years later. In 1521, now 500 years precisely this past April, he stood before, some of you know this, the Roman emperor in Worms, Germany. And there he said, unless I can be convinced by plain reason and holy scripture, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. This is where I'll remain. This is where I'll stand. And so in this secular, gummed up world, I ask you to consider where do you stand? Where do you draw the line in the sand? How do you answer those questions? Who am I and what am I supposed to be doing? Are you putting your hope in things that will eat you alive? I often think of this secular age in terms of of our high desert and dehydration. That, you know, you get to the point when you're dehydrated that you just feel sick. You don't want to drink water anymore. And that's the one thing you need. I remember on a youth retreat some years ago in California, I was up in Big Bear, California, and there uh, in elevation, and I was trying to convince this one particular youth to drink water. It was clear that he had the signs of dehydration. His solution was to drink Coca-Cola. I kept putting water before him. He kept refusing. I couldn't force feed him the water. I was so frustrated. And you know what happened, right? He got sick. The very thing we need is the very thing that so often in this day and age seems to repulse us. Group Publishing reported, or excuse me, Barna Publishing reported in 2019 that 7 out of 10 people today report that they are not on a spiritual journey. And yet the very thing they need to answer the question is the very thing that they're avoiding. Charles Taylor, the scholar who in many ways coined this age, secular age that we're in, says that in his seminal work that he calls it a new and unprecedented move away from transcendence towards an anthropomorphic shift, he calls it, that locates meaning in humanity rather than a transcendent God. He calls that an imminent frame. Well, this imminent frame is most certainly something new over the last couple of hundred years. In one sense, we've always, uh, throughout human history, sought to seek meaning from transcendent God, or in some cases, God's. And another really true sense, it's nothing new under the sun either. Because we've been trying to decide that we make meaning, we take the gum out of our mouth and stick it to the wall instead of God since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve said, I'm not so sure that's correct. I think I'd like to try it like this instead. And we've been gummed up ever since. The imminent frame is a world that looks elsewhere 
or looks for those things that will eat us alive. Unless we think it's just those folks out here, that secularosity, as David Zoll calls it, is in the church as well. We put our hopes in places of our own making instead of what God has done. And that leaves us back at the vine. You see, because the great irony of this secular age is that it's ultimately a theological problem that will require a deeply theological response. So let's pick up where Jesus tells us to stand to abide, to remain. You heard that word over and over again in John 15, abide in me. That Greek word meno is an unwavering, solid, never leaving, permanent, stay here. This is the place, this is the place to stick your faith to. And he does something fascinating. This image of The vineyard, the vine, was, as I've already shared, powerful in Israel. And as they understood it, they were the vine, and God was the vine dresser. But Jesus says, let me update your picture. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The father is still the vine dresser. He makes it personal. The word becomes flesh. Jesus is the vine. We attach to him. This is where we stand. This is where we remain. This is where we abide. He is the very one in which those deep-seated questions can get answered to their fullness. And like he did in the chapters leading up to chapter 15, he makes it exclusive. As he says earlier, I am the door. Or in the previous chapter, I am the way. He now lets God's people know that he is the vine. There are not many vines. There's just one vine. It's exclusive. You must attach to him. An exclusive place of connection with God, as one scholar puts it clearly. At the beginning of that text, we find out that he's the true vine. The Greek word there is genuine. This is the source. And what's beautiful about this vine, Jesus, when he says it's him, you can test it. You can ask questions. Did he really live? Did he really die? Did he really rise again? You can examine him. And he has, believe me, been questioned and examined carefully for 2,000 years. Historical records, archaeological records, textual criticism. And Jesus, the source of life, the true vine, the place that we're called to attach ourselves the place that we're called to stand and remain, he remains faithful. Everything else will eat you alive. 
to something else. If he's the true vine, he connects us. Myron Penner's view of that kind of confession that Luther made, objectively, the here I stand, he, he said it didn't settle things. It began a new conversation to call people to a particular perspective, to invite others to see the world in a different light and create a sphere of rational, distinctive, that focused us and brought us to one place, Jesus. And by the way, the pruning that happens, I like how another scholar, Berg, pointed out, it's not for discipline as sometimes understood, though maybe discipline is in there somewhere. He suggests it's for cultivation. That those life suckers were cultivating out those things that are sucking out life from you. Some of them are good, as David Zoll will write, food, romance, education, children, technology. They're not somehow bad, quite the opposite. They're, by and large, great, he writes. It's just only when when we lean on these for enoughness that we co-opt them for our self-justification and make them self-arbiters of salvation itself. And then, he writes, then they turn toxic. Christ is no longer at the center. And so we have to prune out those life suckers to keep focused in our attachment and remaining to the vine, to understand what is central and that everything else, our calling and what we're to do in our vocation, and we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead, that which he cultivates in us, that fruit comes from the vine. So Jesus defines you, and therefore you arrange, as Barclay will put it, your life around him. It means meaning and arranging life and prayer, and all that we do are arranged around him. Let's not make our own arranging. Let's not use our own word. Let's come to the word that is and gives life. Let us remain in Christ. He is enough. One more quote from the week at the LCMC gathering this last week. One of my colleagues pointed out that in receiving this word, this love letter from God, it's not as if we need to, before we receive it or share it, say, let, let me just, let me make it a little better. Let me add to it or fix it. No. Could you imagine taking a love letter from a friend and doing that for them? No, we take the love letter of the word made flesh. We remain in him. And so today we are reminded that this is where we stand, the true vine, which is Christ. There we discover our identity. And finally, our purpose will be revealed. We stand on the word which is Jesus Christ our Lord. It isn't a philosophy. It isn't a strategy. It is God himself. And we're called to remain in him. And so, friends, here is where we stand. Abiding. Remaining. In Jesus. Amen.